Hello, happy new year, and welcome to episode one of The Shower Scene, my new podcast. So I assume that the majority of the people listening now are coming from The Mad Podcast, which I hosted with my friend uh, Marley for a few years. And this past month, we decided to close the chapter on Mad, and I've rebranded the old podcast into my own thing. So if you aren't familiar with Mad, my name is Dylan, and in the old podcast, Marley and I had some in-depth discussions on movies and music. Every week, she would assign me an album to listen to, and I would give her a movie that both followed a particular theme. And if that sounds interesting, give it a listen. Stick to the more recent ones, and some of those episodes are pretty good. Also, if you've never listened to the old podcast, I don't normally sound like this, I'm just sick. And in our final episode of MAD, I gave a little introduction to what this new show is going to be, but in case you missed that, what you can expect going forward is just weekly movie reviews. Every weekend I'll see as many new releases as I can, and every Tuesday I'll talk about those movies, what I liked, what I didn't like, and give some recommendations. And beyond the weekly routine of reviewing new movies, I have more things in store. Eventually I want to talk about a different LGBTQ plus movie on a weekly basis, and on this show I'm also bringing back a spin-off series that I started on MAD. Uh, it was called Dylan Runs a Marathon, where I would marathon and review a bunch of movies. I have one of those coming out pretty soon, and I'll do those every once in a while. But reliably, the main event of this new podcast will involve reviewing new movies, because as much as I enjoy talking about older movies that I was choosing to talk about for the old podcast, my real aspiration is to talk about new releases. I mentioned a few times on MAD that in high school I had a website where I would review everything I saw, and I loved the routine of that. I miss it, and this is what I really want from this life, and in the absence of the old podcast, that's what I'm going to do. So this is the first weekend of releases for 2024, so I only have a couple movies to talk about, one playing in theaters and another released on Netflix. Night Swim. The latest from Blumhouse, written and directed by Bryce McGuire in his feature debut, Night Swim follows the Waller family. The parents are played by Carrie Condon and Wyatt Russell, and they have a teenage daughter and a younger son. The dad, Ray, is a recently retired baseball player after sustaining an injury he's struggling to recover from, and the family moves into a new house as the mom, Eve, is hoping to put down some roots in a new town after years of constantly moving every time Ray got traded. The family is settling in when they start to realize that the swimming pool outside seems to house some kind of dark entity, an entity with the power to relieve the residents of the house of great pain and or suffering at a great cost. I can hear you. Why aren't you saying anything? <laughs> Ronan, you're dead. Marco. So as supernatural January horror movie releases go, the concept of a haunted swimming pool isn't bad. Swimming is scary, swimming in the dark is even scarier, and taking the terror out of the ocean where it's usually played in horror movies and depicting it at home is compelling. Also, this is not just a basic haunted house concept. The haunting is confined to the swimming pool, and it's not as simple as just don't go in the pool. The movie gets around that. And there's some compelling lore. I feel like this movie might have been pitched as Poltergeist meets The Shining meets Jaws, which is cool. This movie has some good ideas, but that's never really where this kind of thing fails, right? Night Swim is a classic case of a supernatural horror movie plot that should be suspenseful, but just ends up feeling tedious, because a lot seems to be happening here. 
The characters encounter this thing in the pool multiple times, it wants to kill them, and you don't know why it's doing this or how it can be stopped. And there's an element of mystery to the miraculous recovery that the dad has experienced ever since they moved. So on paper, it makes sense that the story would be suspenseful. But the reason that in execution it's not is that we know that ultimately none of this matters. This creature in the swimming pool isn't an actual character with goals and reasons to be discovered. It's just a machine that produces jump scares. Characters go in the pool, swim around in the dark, and this creature eventually jump scares them, and we move on. And jump scares don't bother me, what bothers me is jump scares without consequences. This is the kind of horror movie where you look back on all of the things the creature was doing, and most of the time it just feels like the creature was messing with them. You pick up on this routine of these sequences that lead to a jump scare, and that jump scare doesn't result in a fatal injury or a major revelation, it's just a loud noise. So when the next setup begins, for another sequence, you just kind of zone out because you know that nothing important is going to happen for the next six minutes. That really bugs me. I really can't stand this genre of supernatural movies where the creature seems to know that it's in a horror movie and it's just performing scary things. Because in retrospect, once you learn the meaningless motivation that this thing is given at the end of the movie, most of what it was doing to the characters doesn't hold up. This is just a villain that spends 90 minutes effectively pulling pranks before actually doing something in the last 10 minutes. So that element ends up making this movie largely pretty boring, even if there are some people trying here. I would say that the family dynamic here is a big part of what makes this movie feel so stagnant, because these kids are the same detached, apathetic teen and hyperactive, naive little kid you've seen in a thousand things. But there is a pocket of humanity to be found in the parents' relationship, largely thanks to Carrie Condon, who has good chemistry with Wyatt Russell, and she's at least reacting to everything, honestly. And she's also at the center of the movie's most interesting visuals, and there are some, especially nearing the end. There's one thing that happens in particular that's actually really cool, and you'll know it when you see it. It's the standout moment of the movie. But otherwise, the climax is easily the worst thing about the film overall. From the point where we learn the background of this creature right up until to the very end of the film, this is where the movie transitions from boring but inoffensive to actually bad. First of all, we learn about this creature by getting a flashback to the previous residents of the house, and we learn how this thing works by seeing what it did to them. But the events that play out in this flashback are pretty different from how this new family experienced everything in pretty important ways that are not explained. And then in the final confrontation with the monster, one of the characters does something that always bothers me in movies with supernatural threats. Based on what little they know about this thing, they rationalize a way to defeat it. At the cost of a grand sacrifice, they're like, I know what I have to do, based on something I heard earlier in the movie. And whenever this happens in a movie, I'm like, well, how could you be certain that would work? You learned what this thing was today. You're going to die based on that. And then the movie closes out, and what happens at the end uh, just doesn't make sense. This isn't as big of a problem as the other two things. Just what the characters are saying and what's happening while they're saying it doesn't make sense. And that's how the movie ends. So yeah, Night Swim kind of goes off the rails at the end, um, which at least adds some chaotic joy to an otherwise dull experience. Written and directed by Dan Levy and released on Netflix, Good Grief also stars Dan Levy as Mark. 
An artist living in London who's grieving the unexpected loss of his husband, Luke Evans, after he's killed in a car accident on Christmas. In the months that follow, Mark struggles to move on in spite of the efforts of his best friends, played by Himesh Patel and Ruth Nega, who are trying their best to support him through these difficult times. After a year, Mark seems to be making some progress before he uncovers certain revelations about the past that send him back to square one. I've been reading that the brain is like a muscle. That's why getting over a death is so hard because your brain has been trained to feel things for a person. When they go away, your head is still operating under the impression that it should feel those things for that person, like muscle memory. I think we'll hold off on the wheel for today. So I think Good Grief makes its most interesting creative decision at around the half hour mark, which is kind of being set up throughout the first half hour. In the first 30 minutes, this movie basically speedruns a traditional grieving over a dead spouse movie. We get this opening scene where we learn how lively and charming the dead husband was. He's got lots of friends and everybody loved him. Then he's killed and everything Mark goes through from here feels familiar. Waking up alone in bed, turning to the empty side and looking sad getting dressed for the funeral while flashbacks play of a simple moment the two shared where something cute happened. And then months go by and he starts trying to date again and it's weird and he doesn't like it and his friends remark that he's not the cheerful guy that he used to be and he should put himself out there. But he's having a hard time moving on. All the while, he's held off opening the last Christmas card that his husband gave him before he died. But on almost the one year anniversary of his death, he's finally ready to read his last message to him. I see this plot device as the thing that might have ended a different movie a heartsick widower struggling to move on, neglecting the final message from his late husband, and in the final minutes of the film, he gets the words of encouragement that he needs in order to move forward in the form of this letter from Leon the Grave. But here, again, it's only the first half hour. Mark opens the letter, and I won't spoil what he finds, because the trailer shouldn't have, but his husband's final message to him instantly stains his memory. It's not flattering, and there's 70 minutes of the movie left. I thought this was really, really smart. I love how this movie uses certain cliches to lull you into the feeling that you're watching something more basic. So you're just totally unprepared, if you haven't seen the trailer, for the curveball that it had planned. And at this point, I perked right up. I was immediately paying more attention, and I was excited to see what the grieving process looks like now, that the dead husband character isn't the perfect, untouchable model of charisma and wisdom we thought he was from the prologue, and which so many movies think the dead spouse needs to be in order for us to care that their loved ones miss them. So that's great. But here's the thing about this movie. I feel like there are some cases of movies about a heavy subject matter where the problem is that there's a lot of emotion but no insight. But that's honestly a pretty uncommon problem, because if the movie is striking emotionally and it's doing it well, there's insight in the fact that we're experiencing what the characters are experiencing. That's an insight. A much more common problem is movies where the insight overshadows the emotion, and that's what this movie is. There are like five or six really well-written, very articulate, very insightful monologues across this movie that I almost never believe this character is at a place emotionally to deliver. It started to remind me of that show This Is Us, a sometimes extremely powerful series with a lot to share and a lot of great moments, but that show really started to wear thin on me because the writer Dan Fogelman is one of those great screenwriters who doesn't seem to realize that not everyone talks like a great screenwriter. So in that show you kind of start to anticipate these moments where a character will experience some horrible tragedy and their reaction is to sit, and then they'll turn to another character and be like, so there's this park bench in the park, 
And I'm just like, what are you talking about? Just cry or something. Nothing you're going to say in this monologue will be more powerful than just having a real reaction right now. So that's all to say, that's how I started to feel by the end of Good Grief. When Mark gets this information that taints his memory of his perfect husband, his reaction is just bitterness. Like he settles on anger in the moment. And you kind of expect this reaction to transform the more he thinks about what he's learned. But it doesn't really. He basically just goes from being very sad to being very mad. It doesn't feel like he's wrestling with it, just what the grieving process looks like now. He's just mad. And now I feel disconnected from him because there should be a lot of things that he's feeling, but he seems to only be feeling one thing. And then I feel even more detached because just when it seems like the story is taking him to different places emotionally, instead of feeling something new, he just starts monologuing about grief. The point that I checked out was a climactic scene later in the film where his friends confront him about his shady behavior and certain things that he's kept from them and it feels like everything is coming to a boil. And when he's backed into a corner by someone trying to give him some tough love, the monologue starts about how loss is like an ulcer in your chest. And at that point I had my this is us reaction. I'm like, cry, scream do anything, but just stop talking. And then the movie makes its one and only truly indefensible decision when it resolves Mark's feelings about his husband by partially just backtracking on the things he learned about him. This is stupid in part because I don't think that the conclusion the movie comes to about the husband that's meant to reassure Mark is actually supported by the information that Mark has about him. Like the final thing that he had to say to him doesn't really align with what we're meant to think about him in the end. But more importantly, that conclusion is just not helpful in a story that's exploring how some someone might reconcile the difficult parts about someone that they've lost when they can never get closure. But that said, I think I didn't realize until I started talking about this movie just how much of it didn't really work for me. But I will say that even though I don't think this movie does a very good job of exploring its difficult subject, this isn't a movie that I would take away from anyone. It kind of made me realize that I don't think I've ever seen a movie about grief that was centered around a queer couple where the dead one didn't die in either a violent crime or from AIDS. It's possible that I'm forgetting a big one, but I've been thinking about this all day and nothing's coming to me. So that says something about the current climate of LGBTQ stories exploring grief. So I'm happy this movie exists. And I think this is the kind of thing where even though I'm being critical of how the monologuing and the insights interrupt something real here, those insights removed from this movie can make people feel seen potentially or not removed from it. That was just my experience. Okay, thank you for listening to the very first episode of The Shower Scene. This podcast is a work in progress, and I hope to figure out the kinks and make this what I want it to be in the first few weeks, so thanks for bearing with me while I figure that out. Next week, I'll have reviews of The Mean Girls Musical, the action movie The Beekeeper with Jason Statham, and The Book of Clarence with Lucky Stanfield. So stay tuned for more reviews, and goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>